0: Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM this is Ed Mellick and I'm joined by my co-host Sal Dietry. Sal you excited about tonight's program?
1: Ed tonight's guest for listeners a story that seems out of a movie but incredibly real and a powerful story of grace. Russ Gloskin grew up in a family marked by violence drug abuse, poverty. At age 11, his mother took him to perform a burglary, imagine that, which ended in his first encounter with the police. At age 12, he was arrested for the first time and at age 15, arrested for armed robbery and tried and convicted as an adult. Russ would spend 27 of the next 35 years in prison where he became a member of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, one of the most violent white supremacist gangs in the United States during a seven-year stint in solitary confinement, he had a powerful turning when a guard offered him the Bible. Russ began to see that anger had come to fill his heart, and he began to radically change his life. His story is compelling. He shares it with us tonight, and more importantly, a story of grace where he's now helping prisoners successfully re-enter society when they are released. Russ, my brother, welcome to Grace in 30. Thank you, sir.
0: Russ, when I heard your story, I was just amazed by it, and I kept thinking of the the saying, hurt people, hurt people. Besides your mom taking you on on that burglary, there were a number of things that happened to you growing up, and why don't you share some of the things that sort of fed your anger and rage as you were growing up?
2: Well, as a young child, I experienced things that that other children, uh, that no child actually should should ever experience. Um, The... The violence that came with the lifestyle that my mother led, the, the men in and out of her life, the, uh, the violence in her life just seemed to, to overflow into mine. And, um, you know, when a child is raised in that type of situation, he really doesn't understand all that's going on. He just sees other children who are not experiencing the same things. And he begins to develop this this sense of injustice, or or anger, or in my case, of rage, and uh, just feeling like I was the one that that wasn't a part of what the real world was a part of.
0: And you even mentioned to me when we were talking on the phone that that your mom introduced you to drugs when you were seven or eight years old. Didn't you actually get high for the first time with your mom?
2: My mom did a plethora, a lot of different drugs, but her and some of her friends, uh, I guess they thought it was cute to uh, give me high on marijuana when I was a young boy. Again, um, yeah, it, it was just a, uh, a very difficult time. At that time, I didn't know that, that uh, other little kids weren't getting high with their mom. I didn't know that other little kids didn't uh, suffer the abuse that I suffered. Um, I, I remember that uh, we had a coal bin in the basement, and after the first time or two that that she would get in trouble and then a social worker would find me, and obviously I would uh, be placed into a placement. She would have to go through all that to get me back. Um, she began to lock me in that coal bin. And um, I would stay there for as long as it took until she was done with whatever it was that she was doing, and, and she would come back and get me. Again, we're, we're just talking about, I mean, as I talk about this, just emotion wells up in me because I, I just can't see uh, how any of these things could happen in a young child's life.
0: Yeah, it just seems, when I hear these things, it seems unimaginable to me. And, and she was an alcoholic, she was a drug user, she was violent towards you, and then she seemed to also attract men who were violent, correct?
2: One of the things that that I always like to share is um, I I was told one time that a child's first memories are those that would guide him for the rest of his life, that if uh, you show me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man at 70. And I always reach back inside my memory, and, and the very first thing that I guess I can recall was one night she held me down on a hardwood floor and put her cigarette out of my face. And if I could sum up the anger that uh, that I carried for so long, I-, I think that I just fell into the groove of that saying because that was the fuel that 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 powered me. That that
1: Russ, take us through a little a little further in your life. You arrive in prison at the age of sixteen. You describe as, you know, a gut full of injustice, as you've described, all that hate and anger. At what point did you start interacting with the Aryan Brotherhood? And tell us about this next part, which was, was no less difficult, which was by, by many means, you know, leading you to a point of, of grace later in your life.
2: Well, surprisingly, when I say it, at 15 I was certified as an, as an adult in the state of Texas stand trial, um, was sentenced to seven years in the uh, Texas Department of Corrections, went in, uh, actually arrived in prison at 16, went into a place called the Ferguson Unit, which back then was called the Gladiator School. It's kind of a place where kids just bite and they do what kids without authority in their life would do. As a result of a riot that took place at the Ferguson Unit, a lot of us was reclassified. I was sent to a place called the Cofield Unit, the cofield unit in the early to mid 80s when was infamous had a few different names one of the glass house the house of pain it was a place where where everything changed in my world i walked into this unit and found a uh, a sense of quietness that didn't exist in the chaos of the gladiator school i didn't really understand what it was but men were respectful towards Within the day room, they, uh, as I explained to Ed one time, if if you bumped into someone on Coldfield, you said excuse me. Whereas it wasn't that way on Ferguson. I was to find out, not too many days after, that the reason for this is, whereas men fought every day on Ferguson, men died real regularly, violent, sickening deaths on Coldfield for any type of perception of injustice. At that time, I was housed with a cellie. back then, a cellmate, I should say. Back then, we were racially segregated within ourselves, which isn't the case anymore in the Texas prison system, and um, had a cellie who, who actually was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. So he saw me, obviously, as someone to um, share what he thought was his wisdom with, he uh, began to, to school me, as we say in prison lingo, of the things of uh, racial tenets, the, what we call racialist studies, began to point out the differences within our race and other races there inside the prison, the, um, just the whole dogma of, of, uh, of racial beliefs as a, a white racist male, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, and you said this kind of At gave you a, point, s- a sense of self-worth and identity, didn't it? And allowed you absolutely. to focus your anger.
2: Absolutely. As as a kid, of course, I was lost in this world. And, and once uh, he began to instill in me or to share with me who I was and what I was, and yes, it gave me a, a powerful sense of, of self-worth. All of a sudden, I wasn't that abused kid anymore. I wasn't that... Um, victim of of what I felt like the world had thrown my way. Now I was somebody, and and I had that self-worth to me. As crazy as it sounds, in my mind, I was a white man, and that made me different.
0: So you became quite a zealot, and then you were sort of sent on a stabbing initiation, correct? Which wound you up in solitary confinement for the first time.
2: What happened was, uh, first I began to be looked at, um, prospected, as they called it, prospect in the area, and rather that just carries out the orders or the wishes of the maid members, the family members. Um, a point in time came where a uh, certain type of inmate had been placed on our block. One of the staff members made it known to our two-bar, our captain, who he was and what he was, and um, I was sent, along with another prospect, into his house to stab him.
0: And this is something that happened pretty often, correct, in the prison population?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So now, you know, let's move forward a little bit. You know, you get out of prison in 1987. You're arrested again. You go back to jail in 93. A few years later, you know, you find yourself in solitary confinement for committing just an extremely violent act. At this point, you were... You were at your, you know, at your pinnacle, really, of violence. I mean, you had gone through the Aryan Brotherhood. You understood what they were doing. You had been trained. You, you know, were committing these acts. What happened, and what were the conditions like in solitary confinement?
2: Okay, so I was released from prison. I was out, possibly six, maybe close to seven years. That whole time was spent um, just living the life, whatever you can imagine: um, violence, drugs, women money, whatever went with it, was uh, re-arrested in 93, sentenced to uh, 52 years total. I got a 45, a nickel, and a deuce stacked on top of that. Returned to the prison system, and to me, it it felt like uh, it was no big deal. I was returning to my family. I was in an environment where I felt as though I was celebrated rather than uh, uh, just walking through life, coming in there. Uh, began to grow through, uh, to climb through the ranks of the ARM Brotherhood. Uh, first, of course, junior lieutenant, senior lieutenant, and then a, a captain myself. Um, in 1996, it became known that we had, uh, uh, a man who had shared, uh, information with the staff about our family's business, and, uh, we entered his cell and we hung him. I was placed in solitary confinement, what we call ADSEG, as a result. Uh, The paperwork read that we had been deemed to be a threat to the safety and the security of the institution. I remember my first night in that cell because I was laying there on my cot, on my bunk, and there's a bean chute cut inside of the door. And that bean chute is through which you receive everything, your food, your mail, your, your whatever. And I remember laying there and looking at it, and the light was seeping in around the edges of this chute. And it, it flashed me back to my time as a child at Colbin because I would only know day from night by the light that seeped in around the edges of the coal the chute that was set high on the wall. And, you know, I, I just thinking of that in my mind, I've seen so many people that in solitary confinement that lost their minds, that couldn't deal with the 23 hours a day in that cage, one hour by yourself in the cage in the center of the uh, cell block where you could walk in circles. It was just a, uh, a man gets to know himself real well when he's locked up in solitary confinement.
1: Right, and you're saying seven years you spent there, seven years in a six-by-eight cage.
2: Absolutely. Um, at first, I just continued to do the things that, that I had always done, operate within the family, um, take care of business uh, that, that could be took care of. Back then, we could correspond with others. We had other people who would, who would take care of our communication.
0: So, Russ, what, what turned the corner for you? Um, I know you told me this story about this particular female guard who used to abuse and yell at and curse at, and uh, she offered you something one day. Tell, tell us what happened.
2: Well, this was late 1999. We were at war with another um, organization within the prison, so the administration began to shuffle the leadership around to different units in an attempt to, to break our, our correspondence so they could get a hold on what was happening. Within the system, um, inside uh, a strip cell, I, I had no clothes, had nothing else. Um, I was housed for this temporary uh, shuffling of inmates. So when the guards would come to my cell, I almost said my house—that's another prison lingo. When the guards would come to my cell, I would spit on them. I would curse them, whatever it took to get them away from from my cell. For two reasons: one is because of my anger and my rage, and, and two is because if a card hung out outside of of your cage um it would give other inmates a perception that you were talking to them right uh this particular lady that came by myself numerous times and i treated her the same way that i treated everyone else one day as i was a- attempting to be transferred back to my regular unit with my family um, the lady came to my door and asked me if I would like something to read. Uh, I thought, because I was in a strip cell, that she met, like, magazines or newspapers or something like that, so I told her yes. A little later that afternoon, I heard my bean shoot open, and I heard a, a thunk on my floor, and I turned over, and she had thrown a Bible inside of my house. And I remember being outraged at this. I mean, you know, it, it was, like, disrespectful to me. Do you, do you know who I am You threw a Bible in here to me? So, of course, I ran her off. Well, I had that Bible inside my cell, and uh, I didn't do anything with it at first. Um, I should say I didn't read it at first. I mean, it's the only thing I had in the cell. I'd bounce it off the wall, tie a a, a string around it so I could throw it in the air. I did all kinds of things with it, but but read it, I should say. Um, One day I began to flip through it. I came to the book of Proverbs, specifically a passage that says that a fool returns to his folly like a dog to his vomit. And that blew me away because, you know, you, you have to understand all those years in Seg, I, I read everything that I could find that was full of worldly wisdom so that I was better able to operate within mm-hmm. the confines of 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 the prison system to, to operate within my family, to operate with other gangs and gang leaders. When I read this, I said, wow, I get that. Every little boy has seen what their puppy does out in the yard. A fool returns to his folly like, like a dog to his vomit. That's what hooked me. It's what caused me to begin to read this book. And I started in Proverbs and read the whole thing, was blown away that something like this was inside of this Bible, which, which I didn't know a whole lot about. There was a story in there that uh, that just really got me. If it was the, the book of Proverbs that hooked me, it was the story of the man from Gadarenes, which they refer to as demonic, uh, that, that led me to, to Christ. This was a story of a man who was so angry and so filled with rage, and so the police, the, the, the authorities of his day tried to control him. They tried to shackle him. They, they tried everything that they could with this man, but they couldn't do anything with him. So he had to live in the tombs up above the city amongst the dead people. And, and the Word of God said that he would sit up there, and he would cry out and, and curse, and, and, and then I read the words that he would cut himself with sharp stones. And his rage and his anger and his inability to, to project that feeling upon others, he would then take it out upon himself. When I read those words, again, that Colbin is such a, a, a factor in my entire life, but when I was a small boy, I used to do the same exact things. I, I still have these tiny scars on my arm, as a uh, remembrance of that. So I got back to the story and the story says that the man ran out to Jesus and he said to them uh, what would you have to do with me? And, and to me that means, you know, with the life I've lived, with who I am, with with all that I've done, what can you do with this? The word of God says that, that Jesus healed the man when the people from the city came out to see what was going on in his life what, what 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 had happened they said that he was sitting close and in his right mind and I just feel now I didn't know then what was going on but I feel now that the Spirit of God began to minister to me I broke down in tears and I, I obviously I'm not from a church family I didn't know anything about altar calls and, and sinners prayers and all I knew that what was working within my heart right then was for me to cry out to this man Jesus, this Son of God, and to ask him the same question. With what I've done, with who I am, what could you do with me? I don't know. I just need you to heal me. I just need you to change me. And, and he did, so you- almost instantaneously. I began to feel the spirit move within my heart. I felt, I felt uh, the, the the anger and the rage departed me. The, the racism, the just all of those things, that hatred that fueled me, I felt it leaving, and, and in its place, a, a peace.
1: And so, in this in this powerful time, this moment, this gift from this woman, you came to see that Jesus healed this man just like you, and, and that you had to follow him. But that's not how you got out of prison. That was the start of it. T- tell listeners, you know, you ended up uh, later get, being freed from prison. Tell us about how that occurred for you because it wasn't just this one moment. It became that sort of passionate life following Christ that, that, that led to that. And
0: Russ, we definitely want to also ask you to issue some sort of a, a challenge or a call to action to our listeners and make sure we have enough time for that. So yeah. let's talk about you know, your time when you started to share what you learned with your fellow inmates, what happened.
2: Well, I began to read this word 16, 18 hours a day, every day, because I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I, all I knew was that in my spirit, I knew that the answers was inside of this book. So over a period of time of studying and reading, um, the Spirit of God led me to begin preaching. So I began preaching first there in the AdSeg cell. Four more years I stayed in AdSeg preaching the gospel and and sharing the word with a very uh, unappreciative audience. Um, Was released from AdSeg four years later, like I said. um, Went into the the normal general population of the prison house doing the same thing, studying, teaching, um, sharing the word. Was there an additional my 13, 14 years, something like that, and uh, was turned out for parole seven, eight times before finally um, God saw fit
0: to open the door. You were preaching one time, and, and someone came up. There was a sudden silence, and the people that were catcalling you, and it was a person who wound up uh, going to bat for you. What happened there?
2: As you can imagine, preaching the gospel is not very popular, and um, all kinds of screaming, hollering, projectiles being thrown, and all of a sudden, everything got quiet. And I turned around and looked, and it was the warden. And uh, he didn't say anything, he just left. So the next time I came up for release, you come up every year, um, the gang intelligence officer said, no, we're not letting him go. And it was that warden who said, no, we're gonna give him a chance.
0: Yeah, that's and that was when I
2: released him to GP.
0: Yeah, that's great.
2: Um, coming up for parole, um, the commissioner asked me if there was anything that she could do for me,
1: and I'd heard all
2: about this place, the Prison Fellowship Academy. And I asked her. I said, "Yes, I'd like to be sent to the Carol Vance Unit." Um, and my reasoning was, I knew how to be a man of God on the inside, but I didn't have a clue to how a man of God would operate outside.
1: So today, you're you're the reentry uh, a reentry leader for people coming in out of prison fellowship. You know, as you say, everyone's got to re- re-enter in some way, and this is a powerful way to get people back there. Give a call to action to uh, listeners who, you know, would understand uh, what prisoners go through or just a, a call to action in general to people. You've, you've had an incredible life, uh, a life of, of, of violence and grace, and, um, you know, you're, you're married now. You've, you've got a baby. It, it, your story is incredible. Share a few calls to action with our listeners.
2: Well, I would just say that, um, you know, everything, even my job is a blessing from God. You know, I, I had a counselor named Daryl Brooks, and God blessed him with advancement within the organization. When this job came about, um, you know, he reached out to me, Hey, Russ, would you like to do this? Because he knew I was involved in ministry, and I have a heart for helping people. The the, the only call to action that, that I really could share is is the same thing that happened with me, and and that is the, to, to let everybody know that I'm not unique, that I'm not special. Everything that happened in my life may look different than what's happening in theirs, but the fact of the matter is the Word of God says that God would have everyone to be saved, each person, every person, so the love and, and the peace and, 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 and the gospel, the grace of God, is available to everyone. And if someone out there that's listening to this either has a loved one in prison or they themselves are experiencing something that, that that they just feel like there's nobody in the world that would understand, I promise you that our Heavenly Father would understand. And that grace and, and that peace and, and everything that I've experienced in my life, He offers to you if if you'll just call out to Him. You don't have to go to church to do it. Please don't think that you have to get your life together to do it. I certainly didn't have mine together. You just have to call out to Him and and tell Him, Look, Lord, you know, I can't do this anymore. What is it that you could do with the life that I've lived and, and who I
0: am? Russ, thank you so much for joining us. Amazing story of transformation in your life. And we thank you for what you're doing with Inmates Now. we got to wrap up quickly tonight. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune in to Grace.